0: Welcome to the Working on Wellbeing podcast by the World Wellbeing Movement, the podcast that allows you to be a fly on the wall during conversations with the world's leading well-being experts. I'm your host, Sarah Cunningham, and in today's episode, we'll turn our attention to well-being public policy. And we'll hear from one of the world's leading experts about why the well-being of people should be the ultimate goal of governments across the world. It's an absolute honor to welcome today's guest, economist, professor, co-author of the World Happiness Report, co-editor of the World Happiness Report, co-founder of Action for Happiness, co-founder of the World Wellbeing Movement, which of course is where I work, um, and the author of multiple academic papers, but also numerous really accessible books on the science of wellbeing and happiness, including of course this latest book, Wellbeing, Science and Policy, which you co-authored uh, with one of the guests from episode one of this series. So, Professor Lord Richard Layard, you are so welcome.
1: I'd well, love that you be here.
0: Well, look, I think a brilliant place to start would be with the basic premise of this book, and I'm going to read a very short extract. You say that the overarching goal for a society should be the well-being of people. And you go on to say, this book argues that other goods like health, family and friends, income and so on, are good because of how they contribute to our well-being. So I'd love to know, what are the most compelling reasons why well-being should be the ultimate goal for society?
1: Well, if you think about uh, many of the things that you mentioned, if you think about health, wealth, freedom, and so on, uh, you can ask Why do they matter? So why does health matter? Well, you feel awful if you're sick. Why does wealth help? Well, it helps you to feel comfortable. Why is freedom important? Because you feel terrible if you're oppressed. But if you ask, why does it matter how you feel? There's no answer to that, it's self-evident. So that is obviously the thing which cannot uh, be important for any reason other than itself. But the other ones are important because of how they contribute to how you feel about your life. How satisfied are you with your life?
0: I mean, that makes so much sense. Um, And when I think about governments, um, most governments measure progress by looking at GDP now. I know you're an economist, I'm not. Um, And some of our listeners will be, some won't, but I would find it really beneficial if you could quickly define GDP, but also outline why you believe it's a flawed measure of societal progress and why you're advocating for a better measure.
1: Well, GDP is a measure of the economic activity in in a country, the amount of things that people are buying. It's about the exchange of money for goods and services, and obviously that's a very important part of everybody's life. Uh, the income that they have and the money that it gives them that they can spend uh, on buying a decent uh, life for themselves. But in our research, just to be empirical, which is a good way to go at this, if you try and explain well-being by the the different things you know about. Uh, people, their income is one, but their health is another, their family life is another, their work life is another. If you try and explain uh, the variation in a country yeah. in the levels of well being, income is not actually even the most important thing. So, obviously, a measure of national income is not measuring the most important thing about a country, which is whether people are flourishing and enjoying. And satisfied with their lives,
0: so well-being is what we should be measuring. Yeah. So, how would taking a well-being approach change the way in which policies, governmental policies, are assessed, created, and implemented?
1: Well, obviously, you would judge a policy. I mean, to ma- imagine you—you you are the finance minister of a country, chancellor of the exchequer in Britain. Uh, and people are coming to you from education, from health, from transport, from environment. They're all saying you should be doing these things for this reason and that reason. You should be saying to them, no, we are really interested ultimately only in one thing, which is how do these things that you are saying you want to do contribute and how will they contribute to the well-being of the people of the country. Uh, and th- this is a very very simple principle. Uh, where it's a matter of public expenditure, of course, you would be comparing the effect on well-being with the cost to the government, and you would be choosing the things which produce the biggest bang for the buck. And the bang yeah. means the impact on well-being.
0: That's so interesting. Um, and I suppose if you were to take that well-being approach, if more world leaders were to take that approach, how would that change priorities? What would be the top two to three priorities, or maybe the top two to three policies that might get implemented?
1: Well, if you're trying to answer the question that I started with, what are the main factors that influence the, the spread of happiness, and including the amount of misery at one bottom end um, of that scale? Um, the number one factor is just a very simple measure of, na- of mental health. Have you ever been diagnosed with anxiety or depression? That is incredibly important. And of course, it's neglected mm-hmm. um, in every country. The treatment of it is neglected. Also, the promotion of good mental health is not well uh, uh, attended to. In schools in particular, where society has got a real lever to build robust characters with good values and understanding of themselves and understanding other people and a feeling of empathy for other people. So I would say number one is the treatment of mental health problems when they arise. Number two is the promotion of good mental health uh, in the first place by really rethinking um, the goals of schools which have been increasingly become purely academic I mean, no school, of course, is purely academic, yeah. and many teachers make serious efforts to help uh, the d- development of the character and uh, <coughs> well-being of the children. But this should be an explicit goal of school. I don't think we'll ever get it back into its proper place um, unless we measure it.
0: Okay. Yeah. So
1: we need to be measuring the well-being of children. Um, this is beginning in, in some school systems in the Netherlands, southern Australia, Manchester and England. Uh, That has to be done. And then, of course, we need school policies uh, that help to raise their wellbeing, meaning not just the whole school policies, but also specific teaching of life skills um, in evidence-based ways, which are available. Um, So that would be my number two. Of course, I mean, the biggest thing that Everybody is worried about is the well-being of future generations as a result of climate change. So that that, that has got to be yeah. uh, higher than everybody's priorities yeah. than it is now.
0: So that's really interesting. So improving access to psychiatric care, which of course is something that you've 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 been very involved in as well. Um, yes. at schools uh, providing education to children and also protecting the well-being of future generations. Which there are trade-offs, of course, in terms of. All of us have to make sacrifices in order to make sure that we are protecting the planet for future generations.
1: Well, I mean, there's a whole long list, isn't there? Uh, I mean, there's well-being at work, yes. uh, which you're very much involved with, and the well, Well-Being Movement is very much involved with. There's well-being um, in society. Loneliness is a massive problem, uh, and there's a lot that society can do, build up community uh, services, meeting places, old people's centres, children's centres to integrate society and avoid that terrible problem of loneliness. We could go on through a list, but I just gave you those three.
0: I mean, it's, it's a wonderful list. And actually you're wearing two badges at the moment. Oh, right. One <laughs> is the World Wellbeing Movement badge. The other badge is Action for Happiness. Could you tell us a little bit about the great work that you're doing with Action for Happiness?
1: Yes, but I wonder if we shouldn't shouldn't backtrack a second. I mean, the great idea that is behind everything we're talking about is that we judge a society by the well-being of the people. Therefore, that becomes, should be, the objective of every organization in the society, but also of every individual in society. And this was the great Enlightenment idea in the 18th century uh, that has inspired so many people uh, and has the power to inspire. So when we come to the individuals, um, that is why we founded this Action for Happiness movement 10 years ago. So the members pledge that they will lead their lives um, to produce the most happiness that they can in the world uh, and the least amount of unhappiness. And I think this is an inspiring ideal. I think it um, would fill much of the void uh, of values and purpose that's uh, been created in the the secular world where religious belief is no longer convincing to so many people in the population. We, need, we really need a secular ethic. The Dalai Lama um, talks about this a lot, and I, I, I like what he says. Um, so this is a movement of people who make that pledge. But of course, they need to be supported <laughs> in doing it. They need to understand um, how to manage their own inner life, they need to understand how other people work, how to help other people and to have that uh, motivation and capacity uh, to help other people. So Action for Happiness is a movement that provides courses in all of that, but in the end it provides groups of people who meet together regularly uh, to support each other and be uplifted and uh, inspired. and to regain their perspective which you have to do over and over again in life don't you yeah, absolutely. Um, re- just remember what the most important things are and feel, feel uh, inspired and in a way relieved by, mm-hmm. by the fact that uh, there are many things that are more important than the things you worry about from day to day
0: gosh it's it's so true and you know you've done so much good in in the world through founding action for happiness mm. and of course the world well-being movement but i want to talk more about. individual because we've talked a lot about governments and we we will go back there but for each and every one of us for all of our listeners what can all of us do to contribute to creating a happier world for everyone
1: well i think it's uh, we have have to say um you know the law of comparative advantage applies uh, meaning that each person has got something different at which they are most adept so You've got to find, um, if we're thinking about a person's work, for example, uh, you've got to find something uh, which you're good at, but which also you enjoy, which gives you satisfaction. That's not, <coughs> it's not going to work unless it's the combination of those two things. Um, similarly, in the community, people have different talents. Uh, I think volunteering is an important thing for many people. But it's not. Not. It's not. It's not. It's not something everybody has to do, um, particularly if they're doing a lot of outgoing work as part of their paid work. Um, their, their, their private life can be a bit more private. Uh, so I think that um, we should all, be, all think about you know, what kind of contribution we can make. And this is something people should be thinking about, certainly from, from their, their teens. Yeah. What, what kind of contribution am I going to be able to make? Yeah. And it's different for everybody. Um, and as I say, it's partly through your work, it's partly through your friendships, it's partly through the community. And of course, above all, it's in your private life, l- leading um, a good private life, loving and being loved.
0: Yeah, we we actually had on a previous episode, Dr. Kelly Harding, who I think you know, and mm. she gave some really compelling insights into how kindness and social connections can improve both our mental health and well being as as the giver, but also obviously the, the mental health and physical health of the person for whom you are exactly. doing a kind act for. Yeah, it's and amazing I, that it really is. It really is. And I know there's a huge amount of research as well, isn't there, about volunteering, about the the well being benefits of volunteering. There is, there is, there is. Yeah. yeah. So One of the things which many listeners might want to do, having having heard you talk about why well-being should be the ultimate goal of governments across the world, of course, is they might want to say, well, how can I help make that happen? What can I do to catalyze governments to really take this seriously? And I believe that you have a a manifesto and a petition that people can sign. Do you want to tell us a bit about that?
1: I would love to. So this was uh, something which we launched at the World Happiness Summit. Uh, as, as you were there <laughs> um, on March the 20th, which is International Day of Happiness, um, and uh, it's a manifesto calling on everybody and every organisation to make well-being its overarching uh, objective. Um, and then we go through the different groups so there's the government obviously we want that to be the overarching objective of government um there's there's uh, business organizations so obviously they have to make a profit um they can't uh, flourish and grow without a profit but their raison d'etre cannot only be that can it i mean their raison d'etre is that they're creating well-being for their customers, for their, for their workers in particular, and to some extent for their suppliers. And it's a great moment that we now have when the US Business Roundtable has uh, signed up to this stakeholder view of business. So business, I don't think they quite use the word well-being, but the, the, the justification of a business is its mm-hmm. contribution to the well-being of society. Schools also, of course, exist, as we were saying earlier, yeah. to promote the well-being of not only their own children, yeah. actually, but the people their own children will interact with yes, later in life. That's, so that's what a school is about. Yeah. Um, and then and then we have the individual. So that this yeah. is the manifesto. The slogan is put well-being first. Yeah. And uh, everybody at this Como uh, event, including yourself, uh, signed up to this manifesto. More and more people are, are signing it now and we're going to build up to an event uh, next World Happiness Day uh, when we present, publicly present this, uh, this manifesto and, and its, its signatories. Please go to the World Wellbeing Movement website and you'll find direct links uh, there. But we, we want hundreds of thousands of people to be signing these manifestos.
0: Absolutely. Thank you so much, Richard. And I, I couldn't agree more, needless mm-hmm. to say. So do please, if you're listening, go to worldwellbeingmovement.org and you'll find all of the details of these and please sign them. And for those watching on YouTube, we're actually going to very cleverly get our, um, just below here, get our URL appearing up on screen. Um, oh, yeah, yeah. So you've talked about, you know, obviously the ultimate aim of this manifesto is for governments to have wellbeing as their ultimate goal. Um, of the countries who have done that, so of the countries who have taken a well-being approach, which are the best examples?
1: Well, New Zealand sort of uh, set the world ablaze a bit uh, in 2019 with its first wellbeing budget. And, and I think it was an important moment. Um, they said well-being is the goal of the government, but um, at that stage they took a partial step, what I would call a partial step compared with what uh, I was talking about earlier. So they said, "We've got some extra money.
0: Right.
1: Let's spend that on well-being." And so they identified some really obvious things, low-hanging fruit, as, yeah. as we say. Uh, mental health child well-being maori well-being climate change uh, and a couple of others and that that's what they spent spent the extra money on they are also part of a group of five countries which includes uh, finland uh, iceland and uh, and scotland and wales which are only part of their countries um in the uh, well-being economy government Alliance, it's a bit of a mouthful, we go, um, and they are making well-being that objective and discussing the kinds of ways in which they might, might move towards it. But um, I think it's important to, to, to start by thinking what would be the ideal situation. Yeah. Uh, and the ideal situation is one in which all government policy, not just a few new things we could do, but all government policy, is looked at yeah. through the lens of well-being and that's what, really what what we're campaigning for and what the world well-being movement is campaigning for
0: which kind of brings me to the next question because it sounds to me like there is a science behind how governments might 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 we- measure well-being and the, the the well-being impact of their policies and of course your book is called Wellbeing science and Policy. But some people would say that wellbeing is not a science. What would you say to anybody who says that wellbeing is not a science? Well, of
1: course, a science involves measurement. Yes. Um, and the, the breakthrough was when psychologists um, found that they could measure the wellbeing of people um, in, in uh, a convincing way. So the, the, the most common question is overall, how satisfied are you with your life these days? A scale of 0 to 10, not extremely dissatisfied, uh, 10 extremely satisfied. Yes. Um, And people give meaningful answers to this question, which can be compared between people and compared over time. How do we know this? The most obvious thing is that it's very well, the answers this question are quite good predictors of all kinds of things about people. Um, For example, the, the answer to a question like that is one of the best predictors of whether you'll be alive in ten years' time. Mm. It's about as good a predictor as a, as a full battery of medical tests. So, it's got it. It it it's got information content. Mm. It's not a random answer that people are giving. Also, good predictors of whether you'll quit your job, whether you'll quit your marriage. Uh, good, quite a good predictor of how productive uh, you will be, including from day to day, varying with your well-being on the day. Um, and also, and this is very important from the point of view of politics, yeah. it's quite a good predictor of how you will vote and whether you will vote for the existing government. So that yeah, gives sense. that should give governments a really good reason Absolutely. to take well-being seriously and make it their objective because it uh, would help them get elected. I think one of Clinton's aides says, uh, it's the economy stupid. Well, it's not actually. It's well-being stupid. The economy is a part of well-being, and it's quite it's quite significant that the economy contributes to explaining voting. Yeah. But life satisfaction is actually a better predictor wow. of, of how people uh, will vote in all, all the recent studies that have been done.
0: Wow! And of course, when you are looking at the, the World Happiness Report, you're looking at life happiness scores across pretty much every country in the world. Yeah. Um, are there countries which are performing higher, which are performing lower?
1: Well, there's a huge... I mean, I, I think the World Happiness Report, or it's the Gallup World Poll, yes. which, is, which, which it's based on, I mean, it's a, the most profound statement about what is life like, for the human race, what is the human condition, uh, and uh, it, is, it is, of course, incredibly varied. So, on this scale of naught to ten, um, you've got Scandinavian countries up near to an average of eight, wow. uh, and you've got countries in war-torn countries in Africa uh, at around three. I mean, it's uh, it, it's an incredible scale, uh, which I think corresponds. Incidentally, the rankings correspond probably quite closely to how most people would guess if they were asked to put countries in some order yes. of, for example, where would they most like, to, supposing they hadn't been born, where would they most like to to live?
0: Yeah.
1: And incidentally, you asked me the fundamental philosophical question at the beginning: um, you know, what what is the uh, the criteria? Uh, For a good society, Um, and I think quite a good way of looking at it is: well, if you if you had hadn't yet been born, what would you be? How would you be judging which society you would prefer to be born into? Would it would it be the richest society, or or would it be the society in which people were most enjoying their lives? And I, I think most people would say it's the second it's
0: the second absolutely so
1: that and that also tells us that these numbers that you were asking about they are ex- extraordinarily profound des- descriptions yeah you know, in history yeah. the movement of these numbers country by country yeah. will be a central fact of world history yeah.
0: absolutely Um, Richard as I listen to you I feel so inspired and I mean, I know that world leaders, policymakers, business leaders, academics, so many people who've read your books um, have said that you truly are an inspiration. But what a lot of people would love to know is who inspired you. Um, So thinking maybe about your formative years, were there any people who had a direct influence on you that maybe inspired you to dedicate your life to working on well-being?
1: Well, I had quite a privileged education, um, but it always had this element of of, uh, what are you going to give back? Uh, And I remember this famous phrase: "Of those to whom much is given, much will be required." And uh, I've certainly felt that you know one should be trying to contribute uh, to society in whatever way that that one can. So then, when I was an undergraduate, I read Jeremy Bentham, and, and that said what kind of contribution you should be making. You should be trying to create the most well-being that you could. Um, So I've always sort of had that at the back of my mind. So I started as a school teacher, but then I discovered economics. And most people don't realize this, but economics was um, invented, if you like, in the 18th century to uh, try and answer the question, what kind of uh, uh, organization of society would produce the most well-being. I mean, that's what it—that's what it was founded for, and what a lot of economists do now. And that uh, excited me greatly uh, was what they call cost-benefit analysis, right. um, which is trying to look at the the value for money in terms of um, benefits measured by what people would be willing to pay. And that's a very valuable thing to do, but it just can't be done for. <laughs> Three quarters of the things that are important to people, and it just not, you can't get sensible answers about health and so on from that, that approach. You shouldn't get sensible answers about other things. So that's why it is so great that we've got this direct measurement of well-being, which I want all policymakers to adopt. I want also to become part of economics if that could uh, be arranged, um, because. On so many of the things that matter most to people, there are choices. There are priorities to be set all the time, but they can't be measured by willingness to pay. They can be measured um, by uh, direct measures of well-being. So the person who who first pushed this was a great American psychologist called Edward Diener, who died last year, uh, very sadly, but he. Uh, uh, joined forces quite rapidly with Daniel Kahneman um, the psychologist who won the Nobel Prize in economics which was quite a feat so
0: Thinking Fast and Slow is Daniel Kahneman's famous uh, book amongst many of course Exactly, yeah,
1: yeah Thinking Fast and Slow, the, the, the last section is about happiness Um the earlier sections are about decision making but of course they're related yeah. um, He influenced me m- m- greatly um, And um, persuaded me that these measurements had had information content and that we really could work, use them to make the world a better place.
0: Okay, so it seems like throughout your your journey you've either read the works of um, philosophers, economists, uh, psychologists, you mentioned Jeremy Bentham, you mentioned Daniel Kahneman, so these are the people who had a great influence on you um, in terms of your life's work. Now, few people on this planet know as much about the science of well-being and happiness as you do. But what I'm really interested in is out of all of the techniques that you've come across during your years of research, are there one or two techniques that you apply yourself in your everyday life to improve your own well-being and happiness?
1: Well, yeah, I mean, I've got to know uh, many of these wonderful um, people, you know, like the the Buddhist monk Matthieu Rika, I got to know the Dalai Lama somewhat. Um, got to know um, Martin Seligman, from whom I learned a lot about positive psychology and so on. Um, so, I mean, I, I, I do have that series of techniques, uh, some, some of which I think is, is it, you know, like a mantra you shouldn't be talking to other people about. It. I mean, I, I went to Bhutan. Twice and wow. met, met um, one one what they call a high lama, um, and I, I asked him, um, "Do you have a method for just automatically raising your spirits?" Yes, yeah. So he taught me one. So I have I have, I have a I have a method. So
0: can you share the method with no, our listeners? No, no. You, you can't. You
1: can't. You you, you can't really. It's not, not. But it's. I think every everybody should find some method. I mean, the the. Um, Obviously, the, the the key, perhaps the most important uh, lesson in positive psychology, is gratitude, mm-hmm. or, which means essentially focusing on, on all the positive features of of your life and and not not denying or suppressing, but just letting the negative ones sit sit there um, uh, without. Uh, attracting so much attention, um, as they so easily do. I mean, as we know, you know, we grew up in the savannah and we were in yes. danger of being eaten uh, yeah. and therefore we, we were sort of naturally anxious all the time. Yeah. I mean, we don't need to do that now and we don't need to focus on the the negative. We've got um, positive things that we can focus on and get on, get on with. Um, so I think that that's been very important. I think mindfulness I've learned as, as a sort of me- method of calming, calming yourself, restoring perspective, yeah. uh, appreciating um, whatever you, you, you choose to focus on. There, there are lots of, everybody will have their own method to be perfectly honest.
0: But, but I think it's wonderful advice. And, you know, Richard, you know me and I, I've been honest um, and open about the fact that I have a history um, of generalized anxiety disorder myself. And anxiety is something that is with you for life. You learn to cope with it and you learn to live with it. Um, and I do every day. I do at the start of every day and at the end of every day, I say the three things that I'm grateful for. Right. And it becomes a really enjoyable exercise, actually. I do it with mm. my husband as well. At the end of, of every day, oh, really? the two of us have a quick chat. What are the three things that we're grateful for today and sometimes they're silly things and sometimes they're really deep meaningful things but I definitely think for me it helps ground me in the present and keep some of those negative thoughts at bay and remind me actually of all the great things that that I am grateful for
1: mean um, I think the things one's grateful for um but I think it's also quite important to to co- connect I think there's a good part in every human being
0: yeah
1: um, which we often don't even maintain contact within ourselves. Yeah. Uh, I think to um, I've, I've been very influenced actually by um, someone called Etty Hillesum, who was a, a Jewish lady um, yeah. who eventually died in Auschwitz, and facing this, this prospect, she, she resolved that she was go- going to appreciate life to the full so long as it, long as it lasted by, Repeatedly, focusing on what she found to be the deepest and best parts of herself, and I think, we, I think we, we all have that deepest and best part, and to connect with that is also a good thing, yeah. uh, which is not quite the same as being grateful. It's really connecting with some some inner, deep inner part of yourself, which, which can help you to radiate outward. Yeah. Um,
0: I mean, it's incredible advice. I, I do want to ask you: We will have listeners who are hearing this conversation who might be actively suffering from either, you know, very serious anxiety or depression. Mm. What would your advice be for any listeners who are struggling at the moment?
1: Well, get get the relevant therapy. Get get get. This is this is really important, and um, get a proper assessment.
0: Yeah.
1: Um. You you don't want generalized counselling, you know. Uh, you want to find out someone who is is, is competent to yeah. assess what is the cent- you know, central problem. If you pe- people have multiple problems, of course, because one problem generates another. But the, the thing to focus on, if you want help, is to to identify the, the central problem, yeah. and then get the relevant evidence based psychological therapy for it. Um, in Britain, we have this what's now called NHS talking therapies for anxiety and depression, um, which is, is on the NHS. Um, of, of course, there's also uh, employee assistance. Many people will Don't have it uh, uh, through their, their employer. Um, different countries yeah. have, have different systems, but uh, I, I would strongly recommend that um, assessment We we found in this NHS talking therapies that the the recovery rates differ across the services across Mm -hmm. Britain. But one of the factors that most uh, predicts how many of the patients will recover Mm -hmm. um, is whether that service is is practicing uh, problem identification before the treatment begins, And, and then and then choosing the, the, the really appropriate therapy for that problem.
0: So that's so important. We're all unique and our mm. challenges are unique. So there is no one size fits all when it mm. comes to therapy. And I know you are a huge proponent of cognitive behavioral therapy and you've done a huge amount of great work to get cognitive behavioral therapy uh, rolled out complimentary on the NHS uh, for people who are suffering. Do you want to tell us a little bit about the work you did there and why you're such a strong advocate of cognitive behavioral therapy?
1: Well, um, actually, I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm not a psychologist. Um, so the situation in Britain, um, when I got interested in this, was that we, we have a, a, a wonderful um, official body called National Institute of Clinical Excellence that recommends, or even specifies actually, what therapies should be provided for what problems, including cancer and so on. Um, within the National Health Service, they were, for most physical problems, their guidelines were being applied. Mm-hmm. And for all mental health problems, they were not being applied. <laughs> most mental health problems, they were not being applied. So I would interested to be an outrage. Mm-hmm. And I still think that the, there is shocking discrimination in every health care system, in every health insurance system, Against mental health people relative to people physical health problems, so so since I had a political connection, um, I was a, a, in a position to to say this is outrageous and we've got to get the service going. And then the question is what the service should be. Um, I was very very lucky to uh, meet up with uh, David Clark, who's a very leading uh, psychological. Um, therapy specialist um, and we got a consensus actually on how this should be it would be to implement the nice guidelines which not only CBT cognitive behavioral therapy but also interpersonal therapy pre psychodynamic uh, elements of counseling for depression um, and also of course where where, where appropriate but but for depression, only severe depression, for antidepressants, Mm -hmm. and and some medication for some anxiety conditions. Uh, But to have this done on an evidence-based basis, provided in services uh, for which people have been trained and are then using the technique for which they have been trained. Um, And we we made a big big thing about monitoring the uh, progress of the patients session by session, so that we knew what was being achieved. And this, of course, has led, uh, has led to much greater credibility for the service mm-hmm. and political support than would have been the case otherwise. And it, it has now been copied in five other countries. Wow. So, uh, yeah, I, I think that, that, that can hopefully contribute to the well-being of the world.
0: And that is why so many th- people think you're an inspiration, Richard. Um, and also, I think certainly puts to rest any debate. Well-being is certainly a science. I think you've certainly yes. addressed that debate. I'm going to move to what I like to call the rapid fire round. Um, okay. <laughs> so these are the quick fire questions. If you had a time machine, I always ask this question, by the way, because Back to the Future 2 is one of my favorite movies. <laughs> if you had a time machine and you could instantly travel to 30 years in the future, What is the change that you would like to see?
1: Well, I think it would be what we've been talking about, namely a a world not driven by the quest for personal success, which is the the driving force that uh, our society is offering people. That's what you should be striving for, but driven by people wanting to contribute to the betterment of others. So a, a, a serious move from Excessive interpersonal competition, <coughs> competition between organisations, good, but between individuals, not so good. From move from that to compet to cooperation as a sort of fundamental driver of what people how people want to spend their lives.
0: Amazing. Um, what's the best advice that you've ever received?
1: <laughs> well, I actually think uh, to marry my wife. Oh,
0: <laughs> Molly, is that yes. right? Oh, <laughs> and um, what do you wish you'd learned sooner?
1: Well, I I think I, I think that many things, <laughs> many things I, I, I wish I'd learned, but I think I, I, I wish I had learned the the the, the, the the practice which Macha Ricard advocates is unconditional benevolence. Uh, I think that's a very, very important attribute that we should try to cultivate.
0: Can you define? Can you define unconditional yeah,
1: benevolence? You, what, what, you, what you want is for the other person, whoever they are, to flourish. You, that's what you want. Um, uh, you know, including to a, to a degree, the person with whom you you know you may have some some degree of tension, um, and I I I I don't think I was brought up to think like that. I don't think I was brought up actually to think foc- to think enough about how other people feel. Yeah. Maybe not even enough to think about how I feel, but of course everybody
0: <laughs>
1: feels mm-hmm. so that that tends to. <laughs> um, take its, its place, but um, certainly how other people feel.
0: But yeah, you raise two good points, how we feel, yeah. actually for far too long there has been a stigma around mental health, so even when we're suffering we feel we have to suppress it, mm. um, and how other people feel leading with empathy, um, and as you say unconditional benevolence, it, it, it's such a great great philosophy, so I want to ask my final question, for every listener, if there is one thing that you'd like them to do after listening to this podcast, what is it?
1: Well, I, I would like them to become part of this movement. To be perfectly honest, yeah. and and to think of think of it as something which really can can produce a better life for people um, on this planet. So, you know, please join Action for Happiness. Please support the World Well Being movement please um wh- wherever you are um try to um spread the message that what you and the organization are trying to do is to promote people's well-being
0: absolutely and please go to worldwellbeingmovement.org and find the manifesto <laughs> and please sign it um, lord richard layard it has been such an honor to interview you today and thank you so much for joining us
1: well enjoyed enjoyed the conversation and uh, i hope hope maybe we'll inspire a few people hopefully so
0: (laughs) (laughs) thank you so much